Well, my name's David Vaughn. Thank God for teachers of hope, you know, and thank God for you today. If it's your first time or you just kind of stumbled in here and you, you stumble in regularly, we're glad you're here. This is our hope campaign. And it's been my privilege, along with some of our other teachers, to talk about how hope can be rippled out and spread out uh, all over our church in our region. And uh, it's a campaign of hope, not raising money, but raising hope. And today, have I got a story of hope for you. Now, fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to go quick. There are so many good things in the story that I want to tell you about. And everybody loves a story, don't they? Whenever somebody says, once upon a time... We kind of lean into that because we know something interesting is going to happen. And something is interesting that's going to happen in this story, and it involves a throne. I like this throne. Some of y'all might want one of these in your home sometime. And I've been waiting for this to be my desk chair around here. It hadn't happened yet. But this is a story about a throne. And everybody in this story kind of wanted to be on this throne. Much like you, people like titles and power and throne. This might very well have been the original Game of Thrones right here. And this story of the throne has some main characters in it, just like all great stories have. We have a king who sits on the throne. His name is Xerxes. We have two queens in our story, Vashti and Esther, who's going to be a queen of hope. A villain, a protagonist named Haman, and last we have a man by the name of Mordecai. Wait till you hear about Mordecai. And even though Esther's story is set in the country of Persia way back in 470 BC, it is just as relevant as anything you will see acted out on any stage today in any part, of, in any capital, of any city, in any country in our world. Here's why because the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem, everybody wants to be on this throne, is the heart of the human problem. If you're new today, I'm so glad you're here. This story that I'm going to give you may sound at first like a dry history lesson. I encourage you to stay alert because I'm pretty sure there's something in this story for everybody in this room today. Let me give you the backdrop. At this point in history, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, they're living in exile because they disobeyed God. Some of us here know what that's like to kind of be ostracized, marginalized, criticized, not really feeling like God cares for you because of the bad things that you may or may not have done. That's where the Jewish people are. And they happen to be in exile in Persia. Let me read you the story about the throne. Exodus 1.1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, more about that in a minute, stretching from India to Cush. This is a vast empire. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. And for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom. He's showing off the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. Evidently, 180 days were not enough. So he's asked seven more. Where did he hold it? In the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people from the least to the greatest 
We're in the citadel of Susa. Verse 7 says, Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. And by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. Uh Uh-oh. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. King Xerxes was a man who sat on a throne, and he was a a man of vast renown, vast reputation, vast power. His word was law. It never was to be changed. The law of the Medes and Persians came from this guy. And the first time we meet King Xerxes, he's at a banquet. In fact, he has multiple banquets. One of the ways you can divide up this ancient book of Esther in the Old Testament is to think of it as a series of banquets. And did you notice the first banquet lasts how many days? Do you remember? 180 days, six months of serious partying, all paid for by the government. I know some of y'all love paying taxes. Look what that went to. And then when it's over, he says, let's do another. And it says the drinking is without restraint. (laughs) And you just know this is not going to turn out good. He turns, Xerxes turns the palace into this royal version of animal house. It says in the seventh day here in the text, when the, in this, on the seventh day, when the king was in high spirits from the wine, shock, he sends for his queen. See, he's been showing off all those other possessions. Now he wants to show off his beautiful wife. Now, what do you think he wants to show this drunken mob of men about her? Was it her charming personality? Was she going to lead them in this intellectual discussion of the rise and fall of the Babylonian empire? I don't think so. He commands the eunuchs to bring in Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. Here's what it says. In order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Easy on the eye, we might say today. Some commentators think that he was requesting her to come with just the crown on and nothing else. But Vashti has some convictions. Vashti, Queen Vashti says no to the king's request, unheard of. Come and prayed myself around a crazed mob of men after 170, 187 straight days of Miller time. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. And it says the king became furious and he burned with anger. No one tells the king no. I mean, this struck at his power. It made him look bad in front of all of his drinking buddies. So what does he do? He consults with his inner council, experts in Persian law, kind of like the Supreme Court of our day. This is a national crisis. <laughs> the, king, the queen won't come and see the king. She's defying his order. And this is also not only a crisis, it's also amusing to me. Here we have the most powerful guy in the world, He can't even get his wife to cooperate with him. But he asked, what am I going to do with my wife? We can't be having this, says in verse 16. Then Mimicon replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands, And say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti be brought in, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility have heard about the queen's conduct, will respond to all the other king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. 
Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the law of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when all the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. These guys don't care about his wife. They're not worried about his wife. They're worried about their wives. This is going to get out. And if the queen can disrespect you, they will disrespect me. They won't obey me. And just like that, Vashti was disposed. Well, years pass. The king kind of sobers up. Xerxes realizes the foolishness of his actions. Okay, let me just say this. You know what? It has been my experience as a pastor that excess alcohol almost always leads to regret. I'm just saying, you ask somebody in Celebrate Recovery, you ask somebody who needs to be in Celebrate Recovery, always does, ne- hardly ever turns out good. So he's got to go get a new queen. So he goes for more advice from his council. And they say, hey, here's an idea. Let's kind of hold this Miss Persia beauty contest. And we'll get a new queen. It would look like this. Every province would contribute to the royal harem, the best-looking gal in that province. Now, contribute might be a generous word. Some scholars think that the word denotes that these girls were compelled or even taken to the palace against their will. If so, that would have been a, a really great example, an ancient example of human trafficking. But if you remember, how many provinces were going to be sending ladies to Xerxes' tryout for the new queen? Do you remember how many? 127 provinces. That's a huge beauty contest. This is like the bachelor on steroids. That's all I'm saying. I realize it is so hard for us to believe in our progressive and erudite day that there once was a culture so superficial and shallow to value surface appearance above all else. <laughs> but there was. Oh, don't, don't tempt me. I have more to say there. But this is what Xerxes does. And lo and behold, one of the women who shows up for the contest representing her province is a young Jewish girl named Esther. She's an orphan. She had lost both her parents. She was adopted by her cousin, another guy in this story called Mordecai. I love what Mordecai does. He adopted her, just like a number of you are doing in adopting kids or fostering to adopt. And like Vashti, we are told in the Bible a description of Esther. It says in the Bible that she too had a lovely figure and was beautiful. That's like Bible code for Stacy's mom has it going on. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Esther, some of y'all didn't know I knew that song. I do. God forgive me. Vashti was a good-looking gal. Esther, she turns heads too, and she makes them turn again. And lo and behold, she breezes through the preliminaries, and Esther is selected as one of the finalists to go in before the king and basically try out. And to get ready for that final visit with the king, Esther has to prepare. Now let me just stop and pray for me because I might be getting in real trouble here in just a minute. She has to prepare. She has to go through a number of beauty treatments. Question for all of you ladies here today. If you were to date a guy that you're really, really interested in, what amount of time would you spend preparing for that date? 
just, just me and you talking now. Hair, wardrobe, makeup, accessories. How many of you ladies, don't raise your hand, how many of you ladies have spent more time getting ready for the date than you actually spent on the date? Anybody? And it's not just gals, by the way, that need to prepare. Some of you guys do too. Or, or maybe you should. I've seen you. I think, I think you need to. Oh, oh my. Now let me read to you the prep time involved for Esther and all of these ladies. It says, before a girl's turn came in to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh, six with perfumes and cosmetics. I don't know what she smelled like before she started, but she's smelling good after. 12 months. Guys, <laughs> you think your wife takes a long time to get ready, okay? Well, Esther goes through this whole process, and the king, it says, is more attracted to her than all the other women in all the other 127 provinces. Here's the problem. Xerxes has no idea that she's Jewish. That's going to be a huge problem because in their culture, they don't value Jews. In fact, many of them hate the Jews. And so the king, in typical fashion, throws another banquet, and Esther becomes his trophy wife. And her mission, as it seems, is pretty much to be armed candy for the most powerful man in the world at that time. And King Xerxes and Queen Esther live happily ever after, right? Well, maybe not. Because the story takes a terrible turn in Esther 3, verse 1. Notice here what it says. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Even his name, the Agagite, that sounds like a villain right there. He wants the throne. He elevated him, giving him a seat of higher honor than all the other king's nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But one guy, one other Jewish guy, a guy named Mordecai, the guy that was the, the cousin and the adoptive father of Esther, Mordecai would not kneel down or pay that dude Haman honor. He saw in him a vileness, an ego that he could not submit to. Not only this about Mordecai, earlier in the story, right after Esther became queen, Mordecai discovered this plot to kill the king from an assassin, and he shared it with Esther, he shared it with the king, and it saved the king's life. Come back to that, keep that in your pocket, that, that assassination attempt coup that Mordecai notified the king about. But Mordecai won't bow down to this villain, Haman. And Haman is obsessed about this. Let me just ask a question, me and you talking, you know, since this, I'm doing some counseling from the throne here. <laughs> That's a whole other sermon. How many of y'all really care a lot, maybe too much about what people think about you? I struggle with that. I have that for a long time, this disease to please. See, I'm doing counseling with you and me. Here's what I found out about what people think about you. It's not what they think about you. It's what you think they think about you. They may not be thinking about you at all. <laughs> That's where the ego comes in. Here's how Haman feels about what Mordecai is not doing. He obsesses. The Bible says when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, the Jews, 
He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman was a Hitler. He was hell-bent on exacting genocide on the Jewish race. So Haman, on the side, comes to King Xerxes, offers him a bribe, the equivalent of 300 tons of silver. That's the bribe. If the king will let him get rid of Mordecai's people all on a single day exterminate all the Jews one day. And oddly, outrageously, the king accepts. Dispatches were sent out, and the Bible says that the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered, it says. Well, Mordecai hears about this, decides to send a message to Esther, this young beauty queen that he had raised, and Mordecai basically says, you're going to have to go to the king and tell him this. And for some very good reasons, Esther does not want to do this. First, she remembers what happened to the last queen who got sideways with the king. And number two, in their day, there was this policy, there was this rule that a man or woman who approached the king in the inner court publicly without being summoned would be put to death, including the queen. She couldn't come from the harem to do that. Now, those of you who are executives and you're always interrupted by people, you would love this policy. This no drop-in policy definitely, you know, cuts out the number of people showing up without an appointment. Because they either get in or they die. And most of the time they die. But because Esther is likely part of a huge harem, she's not in a position to tell him through the normal king-queen pillow talk. So she has a big decision to make. The only exception, if you were to appear before the king and still not have your life taken, is for when the king saw you to extend his golden scepter out to you as an act of mercy and spare your life. Fascinating juxtaposition here. Queen Vashti earlier risked her life by not appearing, and now Esther risked her life by appearing. And Mordecai challenges her with some of the most stunning words that a counselor could give to, a friend could give to someone, a parent could give to someone. And I want to read it to you, because, and here's why. Because in this room today, right here where you are at, no matter what your name, it may not be Esther, this applies to you. There is something in this verse and response from Mordecai right here to you. It says in verse number 12, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai that I don't know if I want to go, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's uh, house here that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. In other words, God's going to take care of this, but you and your father's family will perish. And here's the statement for some of you. And who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows that you have been appointed in your position of prominence for just this moment. Esther, you have, he said, you have not been brought to this point in your life to accumulate an exquisite wardrobe or all these Mary Kay beauty products or the royal crown. God has given you your beauty, your influence, your position to play a part in God's cosmic redemptive story of hope. So let me just say this. This is true for all of you here today, male or female. Who knows but that you 
have been put in your position for such a time as this, whether it's at a school, whether it's at a job, whether it's on your street, why did God give you influence, power, title, position for such a time as this to deliver hope for people? It's not for you. It's for him. It's for others. So before I finish this story, let me just camp here for a minute. The two most important days in life are this, the day you're born and the day you find out why. There's something about a sense of purpose that's closely tied to finding and sensing hope. When you figure out your why in your life, you'll figure out your way in your life. It is really important for you to know why you were born to begin with. And Esther, she comprehends this and responds with words that are just dripping with courage. Here's what Esther said. I know I may die, but I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Man, what a gal of courage. What a person of hope. Clearly, there is more to this lady than meets the eye. She is not only bold and beautiful on the outside, she's bold and beautiful on the inside too. And can I just say this to you whitewater women? You are too. Even if the other men in the room don't see it, God sees it. We see it. Oh, we love the way you look, but I don't need to tell you this, a little secret, that will fade over time. It is the inside beauty of a woman that's appealing most to God and a godly man. The most beautiful thing we could see in a woman is not on the stage in a beauty pageant. It's with her reading her Bible and praying and doing what God has called her to do in the area and arena of her life. Oh, man, women who are Esther-esque here, this is your moment. You have come to this church, this life, this city, this world for such a time as this. And just a side note to you single guys here, if you're looking for a gal, find you a babe like Esther and put a ring on it. Find someone who's inside just as beautiful as they are on the outside. You know, and I was thinking, this is the Esther moment for some of you. I don't know you. I I don't know all your stories, but there's somebody in here this week is your Esther moment right now. Everybody on your social media feed is encouraging you to hate your enemies and political opponents, and that's only going to get worse as November comes. You're going to stand up, though, and choose to speak love. Some of you this week, your boss is going to ask you to do something unethical to help the bottom line, and you've got a choice. I'm going to stand up. And speak up like Esther, I'm going to be quiet and compromise. What are you going to do? Some of you, you're having marital problems, and this is the week your coworker, who's pretty attractive, begins to flirt with you. This is your Esther moment. Some of you will see a people deprived of justice and hope who need an advocate because they're pushed down by the majority, and you're in a position to stand up and say, enough is enough. This is your moment of decision. I want to be the Mordecai to you and encourage you to stand up and speak up as boldly as Esther did. So let me ask you a question. Who's the Mordecai in your life? That the spiritually wise person who knows you, who challenges you, who pushes you to be bold for God. Second question, it's even more important, who are you a Mordecai to? 
Everybody needs a Mordecai. Everybody needs to be a Mordecai. Who's the one you are mentoring or multiplying? That's why one of the best ways to be a Mordecai or find a Mordecai is to be a part of a small group. Our hope groups are, are knocking it out of the park. Uh, Matt and our team is just doing such a great job with that. But there's another opportunity. If you missed out on some of those small groups of hope, Alpha is coming up. It's awesome. There's some information in your bulletin. There's an alpha table out there. Alpha is the thing for you to get connected and get into those small groups. Find Mordecai. Be Mordecai in that way. Well, Esther says, I'm going to go to the king. And all of heaven stands on tiptoe to see what's going to happen when Esther stands in the inner court and waits to see how the king will respond. She shows up without an appointment. Life and death hangs in the balance. The stakes are high. It looks like the odds are against her. We just sang it. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. She was not the weakling. She was the strong one because God was on her side. And as all heaven and earth waits and the inner court waits, amazingly, when Esther appears, the king sees her and extends his golden scepter and said, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, he says, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Husbands, you ever offered that to your wife? Even up half the kingdom? Some of you have trouble offering up the remote control. And Esther wisely, shrewdly says, you know, here's my request, king. I'm throwing a little party. Oh, Esther knows the love language of her husband. It's parties. You women, Esther women, know the love language of your man. She says, hey, king, I'm having a party tomorrow, and I'd like you to come. And oh, by the way, bring your chief of staff, this guy named Haman. I'd like him there, too. I'll answer your question there. See, Esther knows everything is based on timing. Great ideas, great leadership decisions, all based on time. And here's what I love about Esther. She is outmaneuvering, she is outleading every single man in this room. She is the leader. She's the person who's saving the culture. She's the one that's providing hope. This little beauty queen is now a bold leader for God. And we have this little side note in Esther 5, verse number 9, about this Haman guy. He makes me sick. Check out this dude. When Haman found out he was invited to the party with just the queen and the king, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, who's not a good wife, by the way. Haman boasted to them, about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman said. I'm the only person, I can hear him say I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. She's invited me along with the king tomorrow. Let me just say this. This is not a good thing for him. He is not going to want to be there once he gets there. He doesn't know that yet because he's full of self. But all this, he says, gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate and he broods and he pouts. See, Naaman, uh, excuse me, Haman has a mission too. If Esther's mission was to give hope, Haman's mission is called more. 
more wealth, more power, more thrones, more titles. And when you live for that kind of story, what you have is never enough. Some of you, that's your shadow mission in life. More, more, give me. It, it's never enough. You don't realize that God's giving you all that stuff to bless people, to bless the community of faith, to bless the community you live in. It's not for you, it's for others for such a time as this. So Haman's wife sees him pouting and suggests to make him feel better that he build a pole, a gallows, 75 feet high and have Mordecai impaled or hung on it pretty soon. Meanwhile, oh, I love that in a story. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, back in the palace, that very same night, the king can't sleep. And God starts to unfold his plan of hope through insomnia. I know you're not going to believe this. The king can't sleep. And so he asks his servant to read him a bedtime story. And he brings in the annals of the king. <laughs> and what's that read to him? This is like reading the minutes of a board meeting that was like five hours long. The annals of the king. This is like sleeping pills and sermons combined. The, animals, the annals of the king will put you to sleep. So they start to read the annals of the king to Xerxes. And coincidentally, they read this story about this guy in the past named Mordecai who once saved King Xerxes' life but has never been honored for it. <laughs> you cannot make this stuff up. Coincidences happen when your hope is in God. It, just coincidentally, the king can't sleep. Coincidentally, the annals come out. Coincidentally, the very thing they're reading has to do with Mordecai, who was never thanked, and the king says, well, I, I need to thank this guy. When you are wa walking with God, all kinds of coincidences happen, because it's not a coincidence, it's providence. When you get to heaven, you're going to realize all these coincidences had nothing to do with you, it had everything to do with God. You took credit, you thought it was you. Never has been you. It's always been him, just off stage, cueing, directing, working. Well, Haman shows up the next day to see the king. He doesn't know about the king's insomnia. He doesn't know about the bedtime story. Haman walks in, asks, and the king asks Haman, Hey, Haman, I've been thinking, what should be done for like the man that the king really delights to honor? He's thinking about Mordecai. But he asks Haman that question, open in. What should be done for a guy the king really wants to honor? And Haman, who lacks nothing in the ego department, says to himself, who is there that the king would want to honor other than me? That's what he's thinking. Can you say narcissistic? <laughs> so the king answers this way. Let me tell you, before I tell you what the king says, let me tell you what Haman said he should do. Haman said, before you answer, here's my idea. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden on and lead that man on that horse throughout the city streets proclaiming to all to hear, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Haman says, that's what you should do. That's what he thinks is going to happen to me. And I love this. The king says, hey, Haman, that's a great idea. Now picture this moment. The king said, that's a great idea. The man that I delight to honor in this way is Mordecai. And don't you know Haman's jaw just dropped like one of those cartoons down to the floor? 
Oh, and the king says, I want you to be the guy who leads the guy on the horse around. <laughs> it's so it's rich. Some of y'all thought the Bible was boring. It is not. Preachers may make it boring. It's not. And from here on out, it is downhill for Haman. Life comes at him real fast. He's totally humiliated leading Mordecai around town. He hurries off to that final banquet with Esther. And at the banquet, the king asks Esther again, Esther, what is your request? Half the kingdom I'll give you. And now it's defining moment time for Esther. All of this intrigue, all of this discernment, all this wonderful beauty, brawn, bold leadership comes pouring out in her. And here's what she says. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Notice how eloquent she is. If it were anything else other than this, I wouldn't have spoke up. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Well, there's only one other person in the room with them. <laughs> Esther says, an adversary and enemy, this vile Hyman, Haman. And don't you know, she just points at him. Don't you think? Haman, that's the dude. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen, and the king got up in a rage. Haman has seen what happens when the king gets in a rage. He left his wine and went out of the palace garden, but Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. He knows now who to talk to to get stuff done. It's not the king, it's the queen. See, the king had the title, but the queen had the influence. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, this guy is making mistake after mistake. I mean, he trips, maybe he tripped on a Persian rug. That's not in there, but <laughs> the king explained, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, hey, king, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubics stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. <laughs> Can't you just see Haman underneath that sack? Shut up. You're not helping me very much here. I don't need your help. And the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. They call this poetic justice. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Mordecai is promoted to be the new chief of staff. The king gives Mordecai and Esther all of Haman's wealth and estate. And King Xerxes issues a new decree so that the Jews can protect themselves. And they do. They call it pure or purim. They still celebrate it to this day. And so at the end of the story, we see at least for this one, the good guys and hope wins. And I'll just say this, if your story's not looking too good right now, and you don't think, you don't think the good guys are winning, the bad guys are winning, just hold on, the story's not over yet. And even if it doesn't get right on this side of heaven, when this king on the eternal throne in heaven makes it right, the good guys win. Hope always wins. So this week, here's your assignment. Be Esther and Mordecai. And here's what I want you to do. Stand up, 
just like she did, look up and speak up for others when given the opportunity. God has placed you, God has placed our church to stand up, to look up and say, God, I need your help, and to speak up when given the opportunity. You will have an opportunity to speak up this week. Will you be Esther? Will you be Mordecai? Or will you be quiet and will you cower? Oh, I wish I had more time to cover all details of this book. There's so much I missed out, so much I could have said. Read the story of Esther. It is fascinating. And what is really fascinating about this ancient book of Esther is it's the only book in the Old Testament, only book in the Bible, that never specifically mentions or names the word God. It's not in there. You can't find it. (laughs) And it's such a great reminder that though you may not see God at work, he's always at work. He's just off stage, just behind the scenes in your story, weaving his story in it. And even though God is invisible, the king is invincible. If you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. We sung it last Thursday night at our Song of Hope. Even when I don't see it, you're working. He's a way maker. Don't lose hope. He's weaving something in your life right now, this moment, that God wants you to do and be and say for such a time as this. And if you miss that opportunity, God will deliver another way, but you've missed your opportunity. So when life gets hard and you don't understand, trust that God has a plan. Let me tell you about Lisa Jackson as I finish this part today and we share communion in just a moment. I love Lisa. Lisa has been attending here since Easter. She loves our church. Sadly, Lisa's husband, Brian, passed away unexpectedly at 51 years of age just a few Sunday nights ago. She shared her story with us, and it's so profoundly powerful. Brian, in the past, had thought that Christians were hypocrites, judgmental, just like some of us did for a while, and he was a bit hesitant to come to church, but Brian saw Lisa's Esther-esque heart growing for God. It made him curious. One Sunday as she was about to leave for church, Brian asked her, can I go with you? And Lisa said, of course, of course you can go with me. I would love that. And he came, and then he came the next week. But the following Sunday, just his third or fourth one, Lisa was scheduled to be out of town, and she just knew that Brian wouldn't go to church without her. But he did. That was the day John Tizovic preached for the first time, and Brian texted Lisa, so excited to say, man, you really missed something great with this new guy. And not only that, for the first few times that Brian attended at Whitewater, Lisa noticed that he didn't take communion. Not sure why. However, the night that he died, Lisa put on his hoodie in order to feel a little closer to her departed husband. And she said that was the same hoodie that Brian had worn that morning to Whitewater Church. And Lisa looked down and kind of felt something bulky in the hoodie pocket. And she reached in and she found two empty communion cups. Brian, unbeknownst to her, had communion that day and found hope. Because you know what, friend? It's not how you start. It's how you finish that matters. And she ended her email to me by saying, to know that Brian finally realized that he needed God 
has been a huge comfort to me in this horrible time. And so in just a moment, we're going to take communion, and that story just convicts me anew again, reminds me that it might very well be one of your first times today to share communion. And without being morbid or paranoid, this could be the last time some of you have communion with God. And if it's your first time or maybe your first time in a long time, good for you. Our table is open to all who want to connect with God, who believe and remember Jesus Christ. And so in just a few minutes, uh, I'm going to pray. Our ushers will come forward with trays with two cups. They have the bread and the juice. This, these are the symbols of Jesus' crucifixion. But you know what they are? They're symbols of hope. Hope. And if you need hope today, if you're the Brian here, if you're the Brian or the Lisa Jackson, this is your moment to connect with God in hope. For God's not finished with your story. You know, when you think about it, Esther is a Christ-type figurine who stood up for her people, freed them from this false accuser named Haman. And we also today have an accuser. His name is the devil, the serpent, Satan. He constantly accuses us. In their day, Haman accused him of false things. In our day, Satan accuses us of things that we really have done. And as we take communion today, we are able to celebrate this same Jesus who approached the throne of the heavenly king and made petition with his own blood so we, his people, could go free. He not only extended his scepter, Jesus extended his hands and ultimately provided hope for all of us. And so I'm going to pray, and our servers will come up and pants those out. After everyone is served, I'll come back, and we will partake together, close our service. Maybe communion this week needs to be a little bit different because of Brian's story, because of Esther's story, because of Jesus' story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to hear what a great redemptive story of hope. And so now as we close out our service, Father, with these emblems that represent uh, your body, your blood, they are the symbols of hope. So help us to trust you, God, for though you are invisible, you are invincible in our life. And right now we thank you for those who will be partaking today for the first time or the first time in a long time, and God forbid even the last time. May we take this moment to connect with you in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.